in your Bible today, the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians, and if you will find it, and in chapter 1, we're going to read a number of scriptures. Just stand with me, if you will, as soon as you find the reference, and we'll read it here in just a moment when everybody gets it. Colossians chapter 1 in your Bible. Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 13. Colossians 1 and 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him are all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. And that's the message today. The last phrase of verse 18, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of the cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Now go to chapter 2 and verse 9. In him, speaking of Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And then over to chapter 3 and verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, in about four weeks exactly from today, we will be having Easter Sunday. We'll be celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And leading up to that, I thought I would preach on the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. You you just can't overdo that. That's what it's all about. If I preached on Jesus Christ every single Sunday from now till the Lord returned, that wouldn't be too much, would it? After all, we are a Christ-centered, Bible-believing church. And So I want to lead up to it, and I think this is the perfect text for that, as I speak to you today on the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. There's an old story. I told it a few years ago, but it bears repetition. It's the story of a young couple who were visiting in London, England many, many years ago. And they were going to be there for a few weeks. They were Christians. They were traveling from America. And London at that time was well known for great preachers and great churches. And so they went to church the first week. And boy, they were 
They were impressed. A big, beautiful, beautiful building and the music and the organ and the choir and everything that you might expect. They left there and the husband said to his wife, what'd you think, honey? And she said, oh, what a church. What a church. Well, the next Sunday, they picked out another one of those well-known churches at that time. And they went and they heard the pastor preach, visited the church. When they left, the same thing. Well, what do you think about that church today? And uh, the wife said, oh, what a preacher. My goodness, that guy was an orator. He spoke, and you could just see the things he was talking about, the word pictures and so on. My, what a preacher. Oh, I, would, I could listen to him every week. The third week came. The story is they went to hear Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon, of course, is revered among Bible-believing Christians everywhere, viewed as the greatest Baptist preacher who ever stood in a pulpit. And Spurgeon preached, and they left him the same question. What did you think? The answer this time, oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. When they went to hear Spurgeon, it wasn't about the church, and it wasn't about the preacher. It was about the Savior. And that's what I want to do today. That's my goal in this message. I want you to leave here today saying in your soul, oh, what a Savior. What a Savior we have. I want you to listen to me today closely. And then I want you to leave and go to your homes and businesses throughout the week. And I want you to think about this all week. What do I need to do right now to please the Savior? Because I have the greatest Savior, the only Savior, in fact, that exists. I want you to notice with me the context here of Colossians. The background here is that a heresy was being taught in the churches. This letter is unlike other letters of Paul. It's to several churches in a region, the region of Colossae. And the epistle was penned here to counteract a heresy, a false teaching, a false doctrine that was being propagated among those churches. Now, the Scripture doesn't name what that heresy is. We know what it is in retrospect. I'll tell you in a few moments. But it's not named here, and there are not many details given to us of it, but enough that we know about it. And in this heresy, it didn't deny Jesus Christ. In fact, they said they worshiped Jesus Christ, at least after a fashion. It, they didn't deny Christ, but they dethroned Christ. What do I mean by that? They took him off the throne where he sits with his Father in heaven. They made him a little bit lesser than Almighty God. In other words, they disparaged the very Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are equal in all of their being. And so these people in this heresy denigrated Jesus Christ. They reduced him to something less than he is. They made him one of many creatures. They made him a created being. They said that Jesus Christ had been created by his Father. And so Colossians was written with this purpose in mind. 
Take your pen or pencil with me. Go to verse 18. Go to the end of the verse. That in all things he, Jesus Christ, might have the preeminence. In all things he might have the preeminence. I've many, many times now in my lifetime going over to the beach here somewhere, the coastal area of South Carolina, and I've stood on the beach and I've looked out over that vast ocean before me. And every time I do that, I realize the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean, how great it is. Thousands of miles I look in any direction, thousands of miles. Sometimes I try to envision it. If I go straight that way, I'll probably end up in Africa. If I go north of there, I'll end up in Europe. If I go south of there, and I, I'm, I'm trying to think of all the expanse of water, water that's miles deep in some, uh, sometimes, and all that stands between me and that other shore out there, the vastness of that great ocean that God created. And as I stand there, I realize how powerless I am. I realize how great, a little bit I realize, how great the one who created that ocean is. And as we sung this morning, I can stand there on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean and I can sing from my heart, how great thou art, how great thou art, the God who could create that ocean. But that ocean is really nothing compared to the Son the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 15 through 20, especially here, the writer has presented Jesus Christ as being absolutely supreme. And so the message is the supremacy of Christ. And the writer tells us here that Jesus is the reason for it all. Jesus is the reason for it all. Can you get that in mind today? Maybe write that in your margin. If you want to summarize that passage, you can summarize it in one sentence. Jesus is the reason for it all. The reason for it all. I heard, and I, I think I've told you this, but it's been a long time, and if it hasn't been, it's, it's still a good story. The professor walked into his class as final exam day, and the students were all nervous, biting their fingernails and wondering if I can pass the exam. He was a philosophy professor. So you know there's going to be something weird about this. And so he, he writes on the board, here's your exam. And the exam is one word, and he put it on the chalkboard. Why? Why? One girl made an A. She wrote on her paper, because. <laughs> I think she was smarter than the professor that day, don't you? And why? You can ask it about any subject you want in the whole wide world. Let me tell you why. Because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus. He's the reason for it all. Now look with me at the preeminence of Christ. What does the word preeminence mean? I don't use it every day, do you? It's kind of an unusual word for us. It means first. It means supreme. It means to be first in rank. If you're a five-star general, you're preeminent. If you're the president, you're preeminent. First in rank. First in position. First in influence. The preeminent person has the most influence in the room. 
first in importance. And Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's first in rank. He's first in position. He's first in importance. He is first in everything, in influence. He is preeminent, Jesus Christ. Now, I take that phrase there, and here's how I can logically make a deduction that's very important. All that God is doing today, all that God has done, all that God ever will do involves Jesus Christ. In fact, it is for His Son, Jesus Christ, this passage teaches. Now, stop and think, and if you think with me, you'll find out how far we go astray because, you see, the average person thinks that all of this is about him. It's about her. It's about me. It's about my family. It's about my children. It's about my life, my world. Uh Uh-uh. You come to Colossians chapter 1, it's all about Jesus. In fact, everything God is doing, everything God ever has done, and everything God is ever going to do, it will be for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's quite a statement, isn't it? Go back to verse 13 in your Bible. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us unto the kingdom of His dear Son. Do you know what the Bible teaches us? That Jesus Christ is so special to His Father, He's referred to as His dear Son, a close and loving relationship like no relationship ever between any other two beings. He is God's dear Son, His special Son, His only begotten Son. He is the one who the Father loves so much that He created the universe for Him. Now, we think the universe was created for us, only secondarily, only secondarily, very secondarily, I would say. Yes, God did create the universe for His children, but first of all, He would not have created it for us if it had not been for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason. We say at Christmas, Jesus is the reason for the season. Let me tell you, Jesus is the reason for everything. (laughs) Jesus is the reason, and He's the reason for the universe. And we'll see that as we study our Bibles together. Now, let me show you how He's preeminent. He's preeminent in two ways. He's preeminent in who He is, and He's preeminent in what He has done for us. Now, take your Bible and follow with me closely, because it's right here, and you'll see it as we go through it. It's just very, very much on the surface here. First of all, number one, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. How do you have an image of something that's invisible? Well, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and 3, it refers to him as the express image, the express image, which means the exact image. Now, listen to you. Listen to me. If you don't know this, I'm going to teach you something very, very important. If you want to know what God is like, you study Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God, how God thinks, how God would respond, what God feels about some issue, 
You study Jesus Christ. Jesus is the express image. That is Hebrews 1 and 3, a mirror image. It's like me looking in my mirror, and the mirror shows me exactly what I am. And I look at Jesus Christ. You know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing the mirror of Almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the express image. And turn to Colossians chapter 2. Go back over there with me, and we read it. And in verse number 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. What is the Godhead? That's the Trinity. Jesus is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the fullness of the Father. When you said Jesus, you said it all, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus is the fullness of the Trinity, as the Scripture teaches us here. Now, continue in verse 15 with me. There's a lot here. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of every creature, the firstborn. That means, that doesn't mean that he was born. It's not referring here to time or creation, or it's referring to time, not his creation or his birth. And there's the heresy here, we know the name of it now, is what's called Arianism, Arianism. And Arianism was a frontal attack on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, it culminated in 300. One of the church councils were called to try to eliminate this heresy. Now, the firstborn here is first in rank, first in privilege, first in position, to be the most important one. They said that Christ was a created being, and thus he was firstborn. He was the first of all those who would be created. And that's the heresy. That's not true. Because you see, Jesus, listen, Jesus is the same age as his father. Jesus is older than his mother. He is first, not in time of his creation, but first in his position, his rank, his importance, his influence. He is eternal. He is the eternal God of the ages. He's not a created being. Remember that, young people, kids listening to me. Jesus was not created. He, like God, always existed. And look in verse number 16 now. We go a little further. By him were all things created. Now, if you don't know that, mark that in your Bible. Do you know Jesus is the creator? That in Genesis 1-1, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The word God is plural. It takes in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1 and 26 and 8, it says, let us make man in our own image, plural. Jesus was there on creation morning with his Father. Jesus created all things, it says here. Read with me. By him were all things created, A-double-L-L, all. And then it goes further. Things that are in heaven and things that are on earth, the visible, the creation, the trees, the ocean, people, animals, the invisible, air, electricity, life itself, love. Everything was created by our supreme Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then 
This is the part I love so much in chapter, or in verse number 16. All these things were created, thrones, that's the authority to rule, leaders, dominions, principalities, governments. All things were created, circled in your Bible, by him, and then circle for him. Jesus Christ is like the carpenter building his own house. He's doing the work, but it's for him. Jesus, all things were created by him and for him, it says here. Creation is for his benefit. Creation is not for me. The ocean was not created for me to stand and look at and enjoy. First, not secondarily, yes, but it was created for Jesus. Everything was made for him. He is the center of creation. And look in verse 17 now. By him, he is before all things, and we've already talked about that, his eternality. Before anything was created, he was already present with his Father. He's before all things, the eternal sonship of Christ. And by him, all things consist. In other words, he sustains it. He not only created it, he makes it operate. And so today, why is it that the stars know their courses? And why is it that, that, that the moon has its cycle and the sun its cycle? And why does nature have its cycles? And why, why, how can all this operate? It operates because of Jesus. Jesus. He is the one who sustains the creation. I looked up on my computer this week and tried to do a little research. I'm certainly not a scientist, so I was needing a little bit of help. And I Googled this thing, a question I think like, what is it that keeps things together? or Why do things consist and so on physically in the universe? And the answer I got is that the scientists take their, their nuclear microscopes and they look into them and they say, you know what, we can see the atoms here, but what is it that keeps the atoms from flying apart? This pulpit is made of atoms, this wood. Why don't these atoms just go off on their own? Why do they hold their shape and their form? And it says, it gave you several different steps, and then here it concluded with this. This is, this is so fascinating. The article said, the scientists use the term strong force. That's as far as they can go, either strong force or nuclear force, to describe the force that maintains the power and balance necessary for the existence and continuity of the universe. The scientists use the term strong force to describe the force that maintains the power and balance necessary for the existence and continuity of the universe. Ladies and gentlemen, that strong force has a name. <laughs> that name is Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the force. He is the one by him all things consist or they are sustained. And then the next verse, he's the head of the church. Jesus is the ruler. Jesus is the leader of his church. He is the origin of the church. We have a church because of him. He's the founder of the church. He is the one, he's the source of the church, we would say. Jesus is the head of the church. You say, well, how could that in a practical way work? How could Jesus be the head and 
leader and ruler and source of his church. Very, very simple. He leads his church through his Bible, through the Bible. He gave us his word. He tells us how the church ought to be organized. He gave us the mission for the church. He has given us everything that the church needs, in fact, to flourish. He is the head, the leader of our church, every church that is true to his word. He rules the church through his word. And so he determines our doctrine. He determines our mission. He determines how we're to organize and what our priorities are and and what the ministry is to be about here. And then if you will look in verse 18, the word firstborn comes up again, but it's a different word this time. And this means he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, this one does have to do with time. What it has in mind is Jesus was not the first person ever raised from the dead. He raised Lazarus prior to himself being raised. You know that. It doesn't mean that he was the first in time to be raised. It means, though, that he was the first person who was ever raised who will never die again. He'll never die again. He is the one who could say after he was resurrected, because I live, you will live also. Our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to verse 19. And it pleased the Father that in him, in him should all fullness dwell. And we've already looked at Colossians 2, 9, but you might want to write it right there in your margin. You want to know what God is like? Then look to Jesus. You know what God would do? Look to Jesus. You know what God's will is? Look to Jesus. The way that God could make himself known to us was sending his son who became a man. And, and, and we can study theology and study deep things about God, what we think about God, but we can never really know God in the full sense as a human being, uh, no more than an ant could understand the man. But God sent him to be one of us. And now we can know Jesus Christ in a way that it's a personal thing. We can know him because we know that he was subject to the same emotions and feelings and desires that we were, and we can identify with him. If you want to know the fullness of the Godhead, just know Jesus Christ. Now, boy, that's a long time for me to preach on one point. But the second point is Jesus is not only preeminent in who he is, but in what he's done. Go back up with me to 13. And it says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. The word delivered means to rescue somebody who is perishing. He has rescued us from the power of darkness, from Satan's power. Now, if you've been saved, you understand that. Though you're not sinless and though you're not perfect, once you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, he has put within you the power to throw off the chains, the blindness that comes with sin. And when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the innate power within you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to conquer those sins that have plagued you through your life. So I'm talking to somebody today, you're an alcoholic, and people tell you about how hard it is to break that, and it is. 
But I want to tell you, Jesus Christ can give you the power to overcome your addiction. And you're here today, and you're, there's somebody you're having an affair, and you know what's wrong, and you're, you're plagued by it, and you just don't know how to get out of it at this point. Now it's become lives intertwined. And you know what? Jesus Christ can give you the power to break the chains of any sin that we're talking about. It might be something nobody knows about. It might be something you lie just routinely. You just uh, exaggerate everything. You're not careful with the truth. You know what? Once you're convicted of that, you go to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the power to break all the sins that are known to mankind. The, The hymn says he has the power to break to cancel sin, to cancel the power of sin in our lives. So he has delivered us, and he's translated us. Here it says next in verse 13, meaning he has conveyed us over into his kingdom. We're citizens now of heaven. We talked about that, sung about it, prayed about it today. And then in verse 14, he's redeemed us by his blood. Now we're into the gospel here. And this is a gospel passage. I can preach the gospel from this, that people are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment I trust him, the moment I cease trusting my own self and my good deeds, and I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, at that moment and from then on, I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. I've been forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future sins even. And notice what else it says in verse number 14. It talks about his blood, in whom we have redemption through the blood, through his blood. And there's the heart of the gospel. Two weeks ago, I defined for you the gospel and the entire message. Christ died for our sins. There's the gospel. There's the shedding of the blood. And then he was buried to prove his death, and then he resurrected to prove he was the conqueror of death, and in him was eternal life. The gospel that we, that we hold to, that we trust in for our very future, our ability to go to, or our, 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 our gift of eternal life to go to heaven, that gospel is right here in this passage that tells us about our wonderful Savior. He's forgiven our sins, verse 14, never to be remembered again. And then if you will notice in verse 20, skip down there. And he made peace through the blood of the cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. And so he's made peace for us. God no longer needs to look at us with judgment and wrath because Jesus paid the penalty. He redeemed us with his blood from our sins. And thus he's the great reconciler, the great reconciler. He removed all the barriers between man and God when we come to our Father through Him. David Jeremiah said, I quote, fill up your vision with Jesus Christ. Take time, no, make time to consider Him who is, or consider who He is and to remember what He's done for you. And when life gets confusing and once sure goals and convictions become fuzzy, push aside your nagging worries and your lesser thoughts 
and lock your gaze on God's Son. This is more than an intellectual exercise because the more you focus on Jesus, the more you will become like Him. And the more you become like Him, the more He will be pleased. What a quote. What a thought. Focus on Jesus. Man, we get so distracted. We look at people. We look at things. We look at the church. We look at the preacher. We look at the politicians. We look at the world. What a difference. If you want victory in your life, it's in Jesus. Focus on Him. Now, I've told you why He's preeminent, what He's done for us, and who He is. But let me lastly and quickly make this point. Let me just apply this doctrine now to our lives. Let me apply this. Let me help you apply it. You see, to many people, Christ isn't anything at all. To many people living in our world, in our community today, Jesus is nothing at all. The only time they mention his name is when they curse. They have no sense of their sin. They're living a wicked life, but they never give that a thought. They don't think of it in that way. They feel no need of salvation. There's no conviction about their need of God here in their life. If they were sitting in this service right now, they would be mocking in their, maybe not audibly, but they would say, oh, how boring this stuff is, all this stuff about Jesus. They would not be impressed. And if you feel like that, I want to tell you, for you, whether you're sitting in this auditorium or you're watching somewhere else far off on television or whatever, if that's your attitude, my friend, I have nothing but a warning, a warning of judgment for you. The judgment of God hangs heavy over your head. If that's the way you feel about the Lord Jesus Christ, judgment day for you is coming. And you laugh and you smirk and you mock and you curse it, but you'll still stand there. Every knee one day will bow to Jesus Christ, the Bible says. You glory in your atheism, your agnosticism, your unbelief, your skepticism. You glory in it all you want while you have breath in your body. But someday you're going to hit the deck. You're going to bow your knee to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To many, Jesus is nothing at all. And to other people, he's something, but he's not much. And boy, America's full of that. Churches are full of that. They want to give Jesus a place, but they don't want to give him preeminence. They want Jesus on their terms. They want Jesus when he fits their schedule. Instead of thinking about the schedule around him. They want Jesus to wait his turn. He's standing at the door knocking, Revelation 3 says, and they're saying, okay, Jesus, when I get ready, you can come in for a while. That's not the way the Bible pictures him, really. They want Jesus on their terms. This world is their home. It's pleasures. It's rewards. The acceptance of the worldly people are their meat and drink. Oh, they'll give him a place. They'll call themselves Christians a couple of hours on Sunday maybe, but they're not going to give him preeminence. He's not going to be first. They can go days without prayer. 
and days without reading a Bible, and days without even thinking about him. He has a place, but he doesn't have preeminence. To some, he's nothing at all. To some, he's something, but not much. And to us, he's preeminent. Preeminent in all things. First and supreme. All things means my personal life, my money, my time, my family, my business, all things that have to do with life, relationships. And when he is preeminent, the single greatest reward you can have in life is to know that you've pleased him that you can come to the end of the day and you take off your coat, you pull down your tie. Well, I pull down my tie. A lot of y'all don't, no longer know. A tie is this thing right here. And I pull that off and I get ready for bed and I lay down to sleep. The single greatest thing that can bring me joy and peace is to be able to look up to heaven and say, Jesus, I love you, and I hope I pleased you today. And the sense that I hear him saying, Bill, I love you too. Go to bed and have a good night's sleep because I'm preeminent in your life. He is supreme. He's my Lord. He's our king. He is our life. You know, Here's one thing I've learned in my many years now. Life is like a puzzle. Life is an enigma. It's a mystery. I thought by that time I got this far in life, I'd have all the answers. You know what I found out? By the time I got this far in life, I have more questions. And there's so many things I wish I would be able to figure out. I don't think I'll ever be able to. Life is a mystery, a deep mystery, a paradox, an enigma, all the words that I can't think of. And the only way you can understand it is in the light of the cross, in the light of the Son of God who gave himself for you. Augustine said it more eloquently than I can. He said, Lord, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Lord, you made us for yourself. You're the reason for everything, and to please you, God made us. And our hearts are restless. You made us for yourself, and we're not going to find rest until we find it. In you, Lord. You know, if you choose a wrong purpose in life, you're going to fall. You're going to fail. Christ made you for himself. Don't reject him. Don't ignore him. Don't give him a place. Give him preeminence. If you do, you'll find your purpose. And I promise you, you will live a life with meaning. 
Stand to your feet with me, if you will, with our heads bowed.